you have a Bible, would you turn to page one, Genesis chapter one. We're in our sermon series on Genesis chapters one through 11, and we'll actually end up spending seven weeks on chapter one. We're not there yet, because uh, beginnings lay the foundation for all of life. They tell us who God is. They tell us how we're to properly relate to Him and to each other. They tell us why we're here. And uh, beginnings also tell us who we are. One of the most important and foundational truths that Genesis 1 tells us about who we are is that every human being has been created in the image of God and therefore has inherent significance, inherent dignity, and value. We looked at our image-bearing creation last week, but we're not done. There's more to uh, uncover. So if you're able, would you stand with me as I read this passage? Genesis 1, starting in verse 24. Listen carefully. These are God's words. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Verse 31, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, Speak a fresh word to us through your word, by your spirit. Enable us to see your perfect, wise, powerful design for our lives and give us strength even when it doesn't feel right to embrace it and to trust you. Speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Please be seated. Most Sundays, we are looking at the details of a passage from Scripture, and we zoom in to unpack it. Other Sundays, like today, what Scripture has to say is simple, but its implications for our lives and the countercultural nature of it require us to zoom out. That's what we're going to do today. That's uh, why I'd say, yet again, in Genesis chapter 1, I've said this a, a few times lately, this is out of the ordinary in terms of sermons here at Grace Redeemer Church. We're going to start with a little a glimpse of history. Margaret was a teenager when she lost her mother, Anne, and Anne had had health complications due to 11 um, delivered children and uh, suffering through seven different miscarriages. Margaret blamed her mother's death and the family's um, ongoing struggle with poverty on the fact that her mother had not been able to control her reproductive health. This is not a quote. This is my uh, 
recharacterization of what Margaret was probably going through as a young woman. If she had been able to stop getting pregnant, we would have been better off, and maybe she wouldn't have died. The broken heart of this girl fueled the passion of her life and eventually led to the founding of Planned Parenthood, our nation's largest single provider of abortion. Keep in mind this picture of a teenager, brokenhearted, grieving, determined to fix what went so wrong in her life. In the 1950s, Margaret Sanger recruited a researcher named Gregory Pincus to help develop what became the first oral contraceptive, approved by the FDA in 1960. It fueled the sexual revolution. Sex very quickly was disconnected from baby making, freeing couples to do as they pleased without worry about the consequences of getting pregnant and taking on that kind of life responsibility. Add to that picture, over the decades since, an increasing rejection of biblical truth, a distancing from uh, Judeo-Christian foundations, and a secular perspective that insists that you are the sovereign one over your life. You get to decide what is true. You get to choose the path of fulfillment. Individualism is added to that. You do you. Don't let anyone else tell you who you can be, how you should behave, what you can become. Listen to this quote from Andrew Walker, author of God and the Transgender Debate, uh, a book that has been a great help to me and something that I'd highly recommend. This is what he writes. There are two unforgivable sins in a postmodern, post-Christianized, individualist world. The first is to judge someone else. The second is to fail to fulfill your desires. That sets the stage for design. Genesis chapter 1. Design. Last week we saw that when God created mankind, his masterpiece, it was not according to their kinds, which you heard repeated just in the day six account, according to its kind, according to their kind, according to its kind, but now it was according to the image of God. Verse 27 repeats this two more times. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God he created them. And then it adds a, a new element. Male and female, he created them. Animals already created clearly also have gender, but this male and female dynamic is not mentioned until now when God creates his masterpiece. And somehow it's integrally connected to our image-bearing capacity. Preschoolers instinctively ask whether a puppy is a boy or girl. They learn that only mommy kangaroos have pouches for the baby kangaroos. Cedar grew up in farm country and still remembers the shock as a little girl of seven or eight of seeing a male horse in heat because male horses in heat have parts that shock while girl horses don't. And uh, parents, if you didn't send your little ones to kids' club, you can fill in the blanks over lunch. Uh, you do not need to call your pastor. You got this. Uh, I'm confident in you. But well before any talk about the birds and the bees, there's something 
simple here that little boys and little girls intuitively understand. A big sister wants to know when mommy gets pregnant, am I going to have a little baby brother or a baby sister? And the answer that is the first is the wrong answer and sets her crying and really upset because she wants a baby sister that is like her, that shares common traits from the beginning to end. No one taught her to think like that. It's intuitive. So I don't say this with harshness, How did we get to today's world with people choosing for themselves a gender identity that doesn't match their assigned at birth sex? Ironically, in an era in which gender reveal parties have become all the rage, people go to these parties anticipating only one of two colors, blue or pink, nothing else. Some of you are nodding your heads and giving a a good old-fashioned, uh-huh. And others of you are cringing and uncomfortable and upset because you smell intolerance. And a few of you may be melting in your seats because you struggle with gender dysphoria. The American Psychiatric Association defines gender dysphoria this way. Psychological distress that results from an incongruence between one's sex assigned at birth and one's gender identity, that is, one's psychological sense of their gender. The way you were born, the color of your parents' gender reveal party, doesn't fit the way you feel. That's gender dysphoria. So how do people respond to this issue? Here's the increasingly popular response. Affirm that person's feelings, validate them. Call them by a different pronoun, maybe even a different name. Give them a box to check on the form other than male or female. Reject that old-fashioned binary way of thinking. And most radically, treat gender dysphoria with hormones and even sex change surgery. Here's a very different second kind of response. Typically conservatives who reject and ridicule the whole thing, poo-poo it, and ignore the suffering of many young people, many of whom who are truly in crisis, um, a, a high percentage with suicidal thoughts and a high percentage making suicidal attempts. Here at Grace Redeemer Church, we would unapologetically reject the first kind of response as well as the second kind of response and aim to show a depth of compassion for those struggling while offering real hope through a new identity. Before we get to that, we need to ask questions that have to do with authority. Whose voice gets to determine what's best for me? Whose voice determines what version of reality actually is? If your answer is every person for themselves, you actually don't live like that. You don't think that your neighbor can act any way he or she pleases towards you and your property. 
And especially if you have little ones in your life, your two-year-old nephew gets to decide whether to pull out the power tools and plug them in. Your five-year-old daughter can choose for herself whether to eat what you've provided for dinner or throw it on the floor in disgust. How dare you feed me pork chops tonight? I wanted lobster. We're okay with that. Your 12-year-old can decide what to drink, smoke, snort, or inject. Why not? Intuitively, we said, well, of course not. Don't be silly. Why not? Because you, as an older cousin or a responsible adult, I don't think that was me, (laughs) you, as an older cousin or as a responsible adult, you know better. You've loved, uh, you've lived more, you've made mistakes, and you've learned from them. There is some measure of wisdom behind your no. You can't do that. You love this little one, and that love leads you to reject their desire and their insistence on self-fulfillment. There's wisdom and there's love at work leading you to say no. So, What if there was an all-wise, all-loving parent who happened to be also the designer of all things, who happened to be the, the author of the instruction manual for humanity, who is the only one who knows the path to greatest joy and lasting fulfillment? Here's a piece of data that weakens the case for self especially nine or 12-year-old self, as a reliable source of authority over life. 80% of gender dysphoria resolves by age 18. That's not from some conservative think tank. That's reflected in research studies reported by NCBI. Don't ask me what that stands for. I looked it up. It's a division of the uh, National Institutes for Health. It compiles research data. And the two most recent studies report even higher numbers. 88% of kids who feel a disconnect between their biological sex and their psychological sense of gender no longer feel that disconnect by age 18. Of course, there are exceptions. But if that's generally true, people are letting 9 to 12-year-olds decide what's best for themselves and giving them hormones to prepare them for life-altering surgery. Underneath it all, and I'm thinking mostly of the adults who are enabling this kind of thinking, underneath it all is the same attitude as Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve rebelled against God in sin. Here's that common attitude. Human pride insisting that self has enough wisdom to decide how best to live, how I can be most fulfilled. Self-fulfillment always feels good in the moment but is always self-destructive in the end. That's true whether you're chasing popularity or indulging in crazy spending habits or looking at porn or embracing an identity different than the one God has given you. Genesis 1 through 3 foundations show us the flourishing of God's design and sadly, Genesis 1 through 3 show us the destruction of rejecting that design. And that design, verse 21 tells us, 27 tells us, includes 
being made male or female, central to our image-bearing capacity. You say, some of you may, but how can you tell someone who just knows and feels with every fiber of their being that they're not the gender they were assigned at birth? It is cruel to tell someone they can't live out their identity. I want to first share sympathetic words, and some of you may strongly disagree with what I have to say. I believe gender dysphoria, along with same-sex attraction, are very different struggles than most other sin struggles. A, a heterosexual person can battle their heart's desires if they know God's will. They can battle them, but eventually get married and enjoy the gift of marital sex. If we say to somebody else, maybe the same person, you shouldn't indulge your spending or eating or recreation desires all you want. Well, that person still has to buy things to manage life, still has to eat and gets to enjoy food, still takes vacations. There's a scratch for the itch, if you will. But if we say you shouldn't indulge same-sex attraction or take on a gender identity different than your biological sex and it doesn't resolve at age 18, that person has no path to express their disordered desire. There's only lifelong self-denial and living in tension. That's why I would say they're different kinds of struggle. So how can we still insist that God's design is not only best, but is the only path of greatest joy and lasting satisfaction? Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27 show you the beginnings of your truest identity. One of the big challenges of teen years is the number of voices that are competing to shape your identity. These are common questions. What do other people think of me? Do I fit in? Will I be accepted or rejected? Will I reach standards of feminine beauty or masculine strength? If only I looked like fill in the blank, then I'd be happy. If only I could run like, play like, sing like, then I'd be happy. The common thread is that all of those thoughts are about a desperate pursuit of a good enough self-identity, and they all fuel, and they all involve fear and anxiety and insecurity, whether or not you believe you're winning or losing at life. Your idols are whatever you think will affirm you, give you status, build your sense of belonging, whether that's a girlfriend or straight A's or being the life of the party or choosing your own gender identity. Idols always make promises about a better identity, but they can never truly give you the life you want. Chasing after self-identity, whatever it may be, is sin. 
because it's dissatisfied and maybe even goes so far as to reject God's perfect design for your life. In sin, our image-reflecting capacity, our image-reflecting identity is distorted. So how do we recover it? Lastly, we need a new identity. Jesus was the perfect image-bearing human being. Never ceased to be God, but took on full humanity. He was both at the same time. In his perfect image bearing, he demonstrated the model perfect human life. He was more fully human than any of us uh, have ever been and could ever be on our own. But he was never married and therefore never experienced sexual intimacy. He did show an aggressive side, especially when he cleared out the temple courts, especially when he stood up to and rebuked the Pharisees in their error, and when he bossed around demons and ordered them to leave, and they immediately obeyed. But again, on the other hand, Jesus, in his full humanity, in his perfect image-bearing living out, he also demonstrated deep humility and compassion, and submission. When falsely accused, he silently endured punishment. He was struck, but never fought back, unmanly, in today's world. I wonder how much confusion about self-identity and dissatisfaction with God-given design comes from idealizing the wrong picture of a flourishing human life, whether male or female. Idealizing the wrong picture of what a flourishing human life is really supposed to look like. If you're asking questions of identity, these are really important ones to start with. What does my creator think of me? And who does he intend for me to be? The bad news is that your sin has alienated you from God. That relationship is, uh, is blocked. It's, there's, a, there's a disruption, and your treason, that's what, what sin is ultimately, it demands justice. But God, we say here at GRC, those are gospel words. He sent his son to live a perfect life, not to show us a model that we can simply emulate and accomplish on our own, but to live the perfect image-bearing life in our place, to do what we could never do, so that all who trust in him as Savior by faith might be declared sons and daughters, might be restored in perfect relationship, might be given a new identity, renewed in the image of our Creator. What you struggle with isn't all that relevant. How you're wired personality-wise and how you're particularly tempted in sin isn't all that relevant. Whether or not you turn to Jesus to find your identity in Him is all relevant. Submitting to the power of the Holy Spirit in your battle against sin, which is 
dehumanizing and identity destroying and soul withering is all important. Someone experiencing gender dysphoria is not sinning when they feel tension between their biological sex and their sense of gender identity. Someone who is battling same-sex desire is not sinning when those thoughts arise. We in the church of Jesus Christ should lead in demonstrating compassion for those who are struggling, for those who have feelings that are almost always unwanted. Every follower of Jesus knows the battle of heart desires for things that are not according to God's will, don't we? The question is, will you yield to your heart's desires, believing that they can bring you lasting joy and fulfillment, thinking that you can fix the brokenness and pain of your life like a young Margaret Sanger who set out to fix what went wrong with her life and her families? Or will you trust the heart of God who has perfect wisdom and love because he's your creator? Will you submit to his perfect design for your life, even though it means daily dying to self, even though it means daily saying no to powerful desires of your heart while you anticipate the day when God the creator will finish making all things new, when he will give you uh, in his very presence, delight in his new world when dysphoria will be replaced with a gospel euphoria. That's our dream. That's our desire for one another. That's the gospel according to Genesis. Let's pray. God, you've made all things good. In our sin, we've ruined all good things, including ourselves, including the your image that we're intended to reflect, we've corrupted it. So make us anew. Give us power by your Holy Spirit to put sin to death. Not just say no to it, put it to death, kill it. That resurrection power might take root in us. Remake us, recreate us with a new identity that rests on the foundation of Jesus, his perfect life, his perfect death, his victory in resurrection. Do this work, Lord, in and through us, we pray. In the name of Jesus, for the glory of Jesus, amen.